0: These Originals
1: Trailblazers Hello and welcome to the new season of Trailblazers in these strange and separated times it falls to me to guide you into each episode of the new season and this first episode is really interesting given what's happening right now in the world with Black Lives Matter movement. Our first guest Norman Jay shares a deeply personal journey with us about his experience growing up as a black man in London and the racism and violence that he saw and endured himself. It's these very experienced that motivated him to become the biggest voice and the human embodiment of the legendary Notting Hill Carnival. Norman spoke to us in December 2019, before lockdown and before George Floyd's tragic death, talking about his early years growing up, which really portrays with great clarity how racism has been a systematic problem for decades. Please listen to the conversation in the context of when it was recorded, in an atmosphere of love and appreciation, and we hope you take that love and appreciation with you wherever you go. We all enjoyed this conversation so much that we didn't even finish his incredible life in the allotted time and we all look forward to part two but in the meantime we hope you enjoy the very special first episode of trailblazers season three
0: trailblazers norman jay
1: today's trailblazer is a true DJ legend and super selector with an A that turned rare groove into a thing and inspired us all to get our fingers dusty in Notting Hill and Soho record shop bargain basements. How many DJs can say they've had a medal pinned on them by Her Majesty the Queen and it's surely only a matter of time before he feels the touch of her sword on his shoulder. <laughs> and, and, and what fingers crossed and what, started, and what started as little more than a part in his back garden <laughs> turned into the biggest carnival in the world and you can't say you've been to the Notting Hill carnival unless you've seen the good time sound system and the man behind it Norman Jay most excellent mm. order of the british empire
2: <laughs> um, welcome to trailblazers cool. what an intro <laughs> <laughs> well you know fully deserved man oh, fully <laughs>
1: deserved and i should yeah. i should say soho radio stalwart yeah. as we yes. as we are in soho mm, right absolutely. now absolutely yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah london so, my favorite city Ever. Yes. Of course,
1: and and of course where you were born, and we'll we'll get yeah. to that. But I'm going to throw over to my my colleague and friend Nick, who's going to who's going to fire the first uh, the the intro, the intro question at you. Yeah, Norman,
3: thanks for joining good us, to man. See you, Nick. It's good to see yes. you again because we yeah. bump into each other from time to time, don't yeah. we? We we uh, we even bumped into each other in a fish and chip shop once. I re- <laughs> Do you remember that? Not too far, West London, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's great it's great to have you here. And 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 one of the things that I like to ask people who've been in the, 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 the game a while, um, is, is really you know, looking, looking across that, that depth of, of kind of activity. How do you keep the enthusiasm, the engagement, how do you keep doing what you do?
2: Ah, Yeah, there's a question, Nick. I think by, especially at my age now, um, I'm in my early 60s now, but by being true to myself, right. um, never followed fashion, Right, uh, music, fashion, mm. um, acknowledged it, swam alongside it, played alongside it, but never really uh, kind of let it dominate um, my music, yes. thinking my music playing, mm. um, because you know it, it's it's a, I guess a late twentieth century construct, the DJ set. Mm. Um, thankfully, I came before that. I liked what I liked. Mm. Uh, So the real job for me was persuading people in front of me to like what I liked. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. that was where my headspace was at and I guess remains to this day Mm. Mm. and and is taking risks central to that
3: or not really because you go i'm not taking a risk i like this tune yeah you um, you know so
2: if you've got to quantify it or call it something yes it would be taking risks in the early days it was definitely taking risks right um because the the rules of the dj game as you probably might recall it Mm. were were quite rigid Mm. um well, remind, remind well, us Well, what... you know, I'm, I'm going back to, to the mid-80s. Right. Uh, or probably even earlier, like a little bit before that, yeah. when um, all the music styles were strictly defined. Got it. You were into soul Yeah, or you were into reggae or you were a new romantic you know or you were into punk rock Um, it was so tribal it was very tribal but the tribal Mm. the tribal thing in my opinion was a good thing always a good thing because it wasn't just music the Mm. music tribalism went hand in hand with the with the attitude to life tribalism with the political tribalism Mm. and the fashion uh, or dressing up Mm. tribalism yes which is an inherent part of particularly British working-class culture, which I've always loved. Mm. I mean, I'm 62 now. I was mm. too young to be a mod first time around, but remember them really well because of the older kids that lived in my street mm. and the fact that these white kids were digging black music. Mm. was weird. You know, white kids are supposed to like rock, pop, and the Beatles. Mm. But I can remember, even as a young kid on, on my street, you know, um, the, the scooter mods would have been probably mid-teens, late-teens, mm. would come and ask my dad about certain records. Mm. You know, they would come and they'd hear, you know, Blue Beat and Scar playing in my dad's front room on the ground. Mm. <laughs> and go, Norman, ask your dad, what's that? <laughs> you know, so it was this kind of interest. You know, black music, from as long as, as young as I was, I always understood that black music always provided the soundtrack to white working class, sort of tribalism, stylism, mm. everything. Mm. Um, You know, even the jazz records that we played in our house, you know, we used to ring ring the bell for some of the the, the mods and stuff. And this went on, you know, all through my sort of formative years, through the 60s, towards the late 60s, when I was old enough to go and buy records and play records. And I remember... You know, so we took it for granted, you know music was just a thing yeah. in in all black households, especially in ours, yeah, and when my white and Asian mates would come round you know off the state, we'd introduce them to reggae and soul, yeah, and kind of convert them yeah. but it, uh, you know it was at its time, you know that, that's what was happening then, yeah, you know there was an eagerness um for for those kids to get into you know forms of black music well,
3: well let's let's d- we'll dig into this a bit more now because you've you've segued us very nicely into the to these early days and then we'll come back to the the issue of genre hopping risk taking and yeah. Yeah. and how how the dj world has changed yeah. since you know yeah. from the 80s uh, and onwards so so where geographically where did you grow up
2: I was a Notting Hill boy. Right, um, born and bred. Um, right. Well, we called it the Grove, Labour yeah. Grove. Yeah, Notting Hill is what the posh people called it. Right. Um, and where were you? Were you at the top Goldburn Road end? of it, yeah, or the you gold, were Goldburn. Well, I'm trying to remember the name of the street that I was born on. The Paddington General Hospital used to have an annex just off the Harrow Road. It's no longer there now. Where the police station used to be I can't ah, even remember the name ah. the street's still there it's still cobbled but at the end of that road I was born okay. yeah and yeah. it was just across the road from Meanwhile Gardens yeah. oh right um, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. um uh, and my family members have been in and around that area since 1955
1: yes Once, yes yeah the, um since the wind rush I guess yeah
2: right? well my mum and dad came seven eight years after the Windrush but they're still considered part of the Windrush generation mm. um uh, when that area was <laughs> so run down, poverty stricken, deprived, it was a proper slum. Mm. Um, and it, so in 1957, when I was born, my dad moved out in 1959. We moved to Acton, but it was just it was three miles down the road, but it was very uh, within easy access of, of the grove. So mm. all my friends were there, all my family was there. So <laughs> I spent all my formative time there. Mm. Every time outside of the door was back to the grove, playing yeah. football, you know, playing on bomb sites, mm. um, and just, you know, up and down the market. In those days, you know, we knew all the traders that worked in the market. All the traders knew my mum and dad. It was a real proper, proper community. Even though it was a really tough, rough area, It was in those days, I'm talking sort of early 60s, 50s and mid-60s, it was an era as hard as nails. Mm. Um, I mean, even some of my contemporaries today um, were born or used to live in that area until there was the slum clearance in the late 60s. People like DJ Terry Farley, yeah, yeah yes, um, Robert Elms, right, <laughs> right, right. We're all from that era, yes, so from from that square mile. So we mm. we, we know it well. Um, <laughs> you know, within a few hundred meters of Grenfell, you mm-hmm. know, Grenfell. Terrible yeah. what happened there, you know. My dad's mm. domino club used to be in the basement. <laughs> oh wow. Wow of there. And uh, my uncle still lives across the road from it. Wow. You know, he's been there fifty odd years. But, you know, that, that those are my formative years. That's where I lived, that's where I played. That's where I was exposed to music. Uh, and um, really proud of that fact actually. <laughs>
1: mm. yeah, yeah, I picked up some vibes there. I, yeah. we moved there when I was nineteen in nineteen sixty seven. And yeah, I lived ah. in Kensington Park Road oh, in, in 19, from 1967 until oh. I guess the early 70s. So
2: you'd have been there when they were clearing um, all the slums well, uh, yeah, for, to build a Westway.
1: Obviously, I don't re- I don't yeah, remember, it, but, remember it, but but uh, you know I I, sort I remember <laughs> yeah yeah I've got a few years on me Norman, <laughs> but I certainly remember you know losing my mum in the hustle and bustle of the market. Yeah, and that, and exp- that was my first ever wave of panic that I yeah. felt yeah. was in that in that neighbourhood. But there was a real vibe. About it, yeah. we,
3: we've got something else in common actually. I didn't realize, but I used to live in Kensington Park Road. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that was start of XL, it was kind of yeah, like late yeah. late yeah. 89 ish. Yeah. Yeah. I was in that's when I was there, but anyway, we, the yeah, world. we digress. <laughs> so, right you, you, you said, yeah, so you were surrounded by music, yeah. What, what kind, yeah, so what kind of stuff were you hearing?
2: Well, um, it would have been, um. Rhythm and Blues. Yeah. Uh, My dad was a big fan of um, South American Tawana Brass. Yeah. Um, He was an everyman. He liked everything. Anything that was good, anything that was quality. Yeah. Um, Was he involved in in music at all as a DJ? No. No. Uh, My dad's claim to fame is that um, he bought on higher purchase, HP, he bought a top-of-the-range radiogram, not the blouse spot that everyone talks about. The the blouse spot's what the commoners had. Right, Um, right. All the Jamaicans had the blouse spot. Okay. Or the (laughs) blue spot. But my dad saved up and got a bush, top-of-the-range. It was was the first stereo radiogram. Right. um, Twin speakers in proper stereo. Wow, okay. And we weren't allowed near that. Right. For years, my dad's <laughs> proud and joy. But yeah, once he bought that, he went out and he bought records every week. Yeah, whether they were pop records or, they would have been mostly sort of um, the big pop records of the day. Yes, you know, Fats Domino. Right. right, right. Uh, um, Ray Charles, of which he was a big fan. Yeah. Um, he was also a big fan of the uh, UK jazz guy. Um, not Ronnie Scott, so contemporary of Ronnie Scott's at the time. I always remember his name, but his name will come to me at some point. So we always had a lot of jazz. Kenny Ball? Kenny No, Kenny not, not, not Kenny Link? Ball, Kenny not, not Kenny Lynch. I remember Kenny Lynch. Yeah.
3: Um, doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Um do. Yeah.
2: But, yeah, and uh, um, we also had, you know, the earliest records brought over from Jamaica, right. um, because in those days, everyone presumed that if you were black, you were from Jamaica, right. which wasn't the case, because my family, my mum and dad came from um, the Grenadines, from Grenada, right. a ah. smaller island, yeah. just like Trinidad, just like Barbados. Um but um, the, the, the music of the small islands was essentially calypso, which we would had calypso in our house since day dot. You know, right. Lord Kitchener, yeah. all, all of that. This is the music that reminded them of home, reminded them of their cultural identity, you know, mm. uh, moving to another country. But mm. this was the music from home. Mm. Um, and then in the early 60s, we're beginning to get the first um, sort of blue beat records or records from Jamaica. Mm. Um, before they kind of called it Scar. Yeah. Um, but it was just records from Jamaica, you know, black music from Jamaica. So we were very privileged in our house mm. um, because my dad would go and buy those records on, on the Portobello Road. Mm. Um, and at that time, um, my paternal grandfather was alive then, um, living in America. And I can remember from about 1960 to about 1964. My grandfather used to come every year on a trip to, to visit our family, and bring the top ten um, R and B records. Nice, <laughs> um, what a treat! Yeah, when he turned up, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because he knew that my dad had bought a gram. Yeah, um, and we'd we'd have all these records. So we were surrounded by great r- records in our house. Uh-huh. Um, and then when I was about probably about four or five. Um, because i was showing such an interest in, in the radiogram that my dad let me have a go have a go <laughs> and that was the first time you'd, yeah, you yeah i can't take remember the first uh, so, yeah so what was the, could you remember the first <laughs> no, record oh, no so okay. they, they were 78s because my dad's gram he played 78s yeah LPs, long players, yeah. and it played 45s. Mm. And we didn't have that many 45s, but my dad had stacks of 78s, yeah. which were brittle, and we—shit, yeah. sh- oh, so that's because we—they'd break. We, yeah, me and my brother, we'd break them by accident. But dad was always cool. And then, sort of, would have been about how old would I have been? About five, four or five. So it'd have been about 62 63 Records were coming in final. Seven inches. My dad would 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 buy them because all the family parties would be held at my mum and dad's house, which is great. Mm. Um, all weddings, all christenings, all Caribbean family gatherings because mm. they were like the the patriarchs, mm. you know, from from the islands there. So everything was held at our house. Mm. So our house always had parties mm. and always had music. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't it'd be years before I realised this. You know the significance and the symbolism of that, and how mm. important it would be wow. for me yes. later on. But that was my grounding. And can you
1: remember a a, a record that from that time that oh. reminds you of those early days and your parents' yeah. parties, and um, that really kind of uh, that made you? I think, remember oh, yeah, several, um,
2: like yesterday, Trubby Checker, The Twist. Uh, I remember um, Let's Twist Again. You know, because we always. Um, had the latest dance crazies in America in our house, that like all the black people were doing, which, which was great. Um, mm. um, Marvin Gaye, wow. um, How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You, I always remember. Uh, we were big fans of Aretha, Dionne Warwick, mm, um, so Fat, much. Fat Domino. Um, Can we pick one to have a, a listen to now?
1: Uh, yeah, one, like, did one affect you sort of emotionally any more than yeah, the other ones? Yeah, I
2: think How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You, Mm. Um, Marvin Gaye mm. yeah I think that's from about 1962 or 63 fantastic, yeah. what a
1: choice the master <laughs> yeah. selector, let's do it let's do it
0: Trailblazers, Norman Jay I stop and thank you
1: So you're so you're growing up in West London. And uh, you're, you're absorbing music through your, your father's incredible pride and joy radio grand mm. And the radio. And, I was an
2: avid fan of the radio. Right. And yeah.
1: you, you, so you had a little transistor that you, that you listened to yeah. and stuff. And, 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 uh, and, I, and the, so then you, I guess, you know, you must have started going to school there. And, yeah. And then suddenly you would then be fed a lot more by all of the kids around you. So t- tell us about yeah. your school well, days. M- what,
2: my, what my school years. Because... Um, it, my mates really weren't into to music like I was, strangely enough, because I was what you would call a geek. Yeah. You, you know, I was into records when no one else around me was. We all loved football. We loved girls. We, we loved, um, and we loved the music we heard on the radio, because I was a big fan of, you know, obviously Top of the Pops, but before that, Ready Steady Go. Um, any black artist that appeared on the television in the 1960s, you know, our whole family would be there to watch and support. And I remember, you know, seeing, you know, the Motown reviews, you know, watching, you know, the Four Tops and the Supremes and the Temptations, you know, you know grainy black and white and our grainy black and white TV set, you know, which was always jumping. We had to keep mm. banging it to stop it from DER Um because um, in those days there were so few black acts, hardly any. Yeah. So it was a big deal. I mean, we take it for granted now, but I'm talking sort of early mid '60s. I can remember seeing Millie Small singing "My Boy Lollipop" in an animated fashion. Um,
1: and of course, David Rodigan was watching that and being yeah, inspired yeah. at the same well, time. Well, it's a
2: huge pop hit, but you know that wasn't the original version. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, um, a girl called Barbie Gay had sung it. Um, a Jamaican girl you know 10 years before yeah
1: and of course it's, this is very profound because it's just mm. occurring to me that of course it was only music that in that avenue that, that in that forum context that you would see black people on the telly yeah, because absolutely. of course there was no yeah, journalists, yeah. new re- news readers you know your 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 culture yeah. wasn't represented in outside any way of except our, outside of music Yeah,
2: outside of of black family gatherings you know the, the music was virtually unknown but I mean I was too young so I didn't know I mean with the benefit of hindsight and history uh, I now know that you know a lot of that early sort of black jazz and rhythm and blues was adopted by the first incarnation of of the mod culture Hmm. they they were because I can remember my dad talking about uh I can't even remember their names now, but that certain sound system men would be keeping a dance in a house, you know, in Notting Hill Gate or playing in a club in the West End. But because my dad worked nights and he was quite the studio sort, he wouldn't go to those things, but he was always invited. He knew on the on the Caribbean grapevine that these dances were being kept mm. um, <laughs> and in, in, in certain places. And, you know, the rent parties were going on, which we call blues parties. Yeah. And they became... Uh, more and more they were frequented by um, white middle classes who were then inviting these guys to come and play in um, areas like Paddington, which were well-to-do, you know, in muse parties in Paddington, uh, in, um, was it, not Holland Park, uh, the other place up there where, where Whiteleys used to be, Queensway. Queensway yeah. And then they gradually, you know, into the West End, into Carnaby Street. Right, um, exactly. You know, And into the West End, and these were sort of DJ selectors, you know, of my dad's generation, you know, who who were suddenly being asked to come and play the new style of ska and reggae, and suddenly white people were getting hip to music that we all we 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 knew, but it was great. But at the time, I didn't realise that outside of our our little family bubble, we had no idea. You know, it was only when I read about it and talked to sort of people, you know, ten, fifteen years later that. Realise, you know, this music was a soundtrack that was to a generation even before me. Mm. So, do, do you remember
3: the first time that you went and saw a proper DJ play in a club, uh, or a school? Yeah, uh, it, it, would have been,
2: it would have been you know oh. at a, 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 a youth club, probably you about 1969 or okay. 1970. Did yeah. that impact on you the first time? Uh, you saw... No, no, no. Okay. Uh, the, the DJ this concert meant absolutely nothing right. um, you go there for the I went for the music because I was a geek yeah I went for the music and girls secondary yeah but in the youth club <laughs> it's a place to you know get girls yeah and do um, for a lot of the black boys of my generation because we were into the music we used to peacock we could do all the dances <laughs> do the watootsie yeah. do the slip and slide you learn all the new dances that came from America and that's the only way you could impress. Peacocking, um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he, you know, even like today, you know, it's born that generation of jazz dancers. We'd, we've always done. Even I was relatively good. Mm. Uh, okay, you know, long before I migrated to behind the decks, I was on the dance floor. Yeah, I'd served my apprenticeship. I'd been a dancer for years and years and years. And, so, how, and how interesting mm-hmm. that you saw no
1: relationship between the music and the DJ. It was the music and the snogging or the music and the dancing. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But (laughs) they much (laughs) in the
2: clothes and the fashion play. Yes, of course. Yeah. What were you dressed
1: in at this time?
2: Uh, I aspired to be everything, but I couldn't really afford anything because, um, uh, I got a paper round when I was underage. You had to be 13 to have a paper round. I had a paper round when I was 10 and 11. Mm. Um, so I had money to um, for my three habits, <laughs> which were, you know, and, and I could only sort of service those habits alternatively, to, to buy clothes, to buy records, to go to football. Yes. I couldn't and, afford to do all three, um, and I'd go through phases where it'd be all about clothes and then all about records and then all about football. But it's funny, the, the music <laughs> was still just put on a back burner temporarily it was always about the records i never felt complete or or happy till i'd gone and as you'd know, Nick, as a vinyl mm. junkie, mm. once you owned the tune, that you, in oh, your head, yeah, it's great, isn't yeah,
1: it? yeah, yeah. And who was your style icon at, that went at that absorb absorptive age? Were you were you dressed like Jimi Hendrix or like no, Marvin Gaye um, or, no, or like, like like yeah,
2: bit of uh, Marvin, first black mod, um, Sydney <laughs> Pottier,
1: Sydney Pottier, yeah, because Classy. all
2: of those black guys always look sharp. Even Muhammad Ali, yeah. you know. Um, and the look was imitated and got kind of like the rude boy look. Oh, okay. You know, but it was always, you know, you look at photographs of Curtis Mayfield or the Impressions in the 60s. <laughs> you know, their mods before mods was... <laughs>
1: was a thing. So was did, a thing, yeah. Did you have a pork pie hat and a yeah. And, and yeah. tonic suit or uh, whatever?
2: Not so much the hat. I wasn't into hats then. I had the haircuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you guys called it skinhead. We called it skiffle. <laughs> with, with side part. Close yes. crop. Um and the, the first sort of expensively branded piece of clothing one could own, especially for my generation, was a pair of genuine Levi's. You yeah. know, Levi's became a thing. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so I'm I'm keen to hear a bit more though about you absorbing DJ culture. I want right, to know yeah. what sort of clubs you might have first slid into as a fifteen yeah.
2: year old. I, or... I can remember all of that, Nick, like it was yesterday. Um, started off going to. Um, uh, the local youth clubs in and around Grove, in and around Chiswick and Acton. Um, they'd be normally sort of Sunday night affairs. Um, and an older mate of ours, he was like five, six years older than me, Barry Stone, he was like a pop DJ in the late 60s. Mm. But he had a taste and a love of, of black music, you know, in amongst um, the Small Faces records that he played, which I loved. Mm. Um, uh, and they sort of s- mid to late 60s um, pop bands, which I f- I love to this day. I still play their music. Um, you know, he would slip in the odd Aretha. He would slip in the odd Temptations. But the slower stuff, um, the love songs, mm. so you could get your snogging sessions. Yes, you like, Al Green, <laughs> The Shy Lights, uh, The Detroit Spinners, you know, all the stuff that I still love and I still play mm-hmm. on, on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um and he'd play stuff like like, like that, mm. which kind of attracted me to go um when Barry was playing, mm. I'd 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 go there because we you know, he knew what we liked. Yeah. And that's the first hallmark of a really good DJ, you know. Acknowledge your crowd. Please your crowd. Mm. Um mm. You They know. paid their money to yeah. be entertained, haven't yeah, they? Absolutely, you know. And he would play you know, the latest reggae of of, of the day would be like Liquidator, yeah, you know Dave and Ansel Collins, all the chart reggae, mm. Mm. Um, which I loved because um, by then, you know, I wasn't into the deeper end of the reggae. I loved all the the pop, trot, and stuff with strings um, because I've always personally, as a music taste, preferred um, string and wind over. Mm. Right. Um, well, let's play one congrats. of those Trojan
1: records. You're, you're sitting there, Norman, with, yeah. a, tr- with a, a lovely orange enamel Trojan Records <laughs> um, badge on your jacket. Yeah. So it would be churlish of us yeah. not to represent that great label well, with a tune sure now. If
2: it was on Trojan, then it's so long ago. But um, Bob and Marcia, to be young, gifted, and black. Mm.
0: Trailblazers, Norman J. Young, gifted, and black.
2: Was a hugely inspirational record for me, and it would take me about two or three years, probably longer than that, to realise that the record was first done by Nina Simone, mm, <laughs> because yeah. we never had any way of knowing. Yeah, yeah. You have to understand. Back in those days, um, you had to take at face value and believe what you were told, what you were read, because a lot of those artists then never for whatever reason, never credited the original black artists. So, all through the 70s, uh, it was an amazing learning curve for me to think of quite a lot of the pop records that I loved as a kid growing up, which is hugely important to me, that I subsequently learned <laughs> that they were cover versions of these un- unknown artists. I'm like, damn. Mm. But then, when I went to... My first trip to America in '79. I set about trying to find all of those original records of, um, you know, I love the Small Faces. Always loved the Small Faces' stuff. Mm. Um, what's name a couple of their big tunes, Nick? You know, big mod anthems. Um, they were actually written. They were cover versions. Right. Of yeah. Of of oh, there's a long yeah, there's a, a, a long of them yeah, but yeah. I mean. And and it was that process of discovery, yeah. which was really driving me. I I loved it, you know. Crate digging, you know, yeah. seventy nine, eighty. I'm in mean, New York years before that became a thing. I knew um, Northern Soul people were going over, but they were looking for different records to me. Yeah. Mm. So, and the advantage that I had then was that I was able to go, being black, go into the, some of the darkest places in and around New York mm. <laughs> where angels feared to tread, because <laughs> in Most barbershops, well, I won't say most. It's wrong to say most. Some of the barbershops were a front for drugs. Right. So to have this veneer of legitimacy, they sold records. They sold clothes. Yeah. You go in the back of any barbershop, there's a record rack. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the records would be there for so long, so dusty, 50 cents, 25 cents. But if you picked up too many, the guy in the shop, would he's on a hustle, you know. He'd look, suddenly he'd go ten dollars, <laughs> 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 and he put them back. Okay, you're like, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And then you come back in the next day when someone's in there, And you, you get them again. Right. Um Or if you buy something else, you, know, you could take the records. They give them to you because nobody wanted them. Um, but you know that was when I was doing uh, uh, much later in the eighties. But, but it, yeah, back in those days, yeah, um, I didn't have a DJ hero. No. Um, so when you were when you were going to New York in in
1: uh, the late seventies, yeah, and you early were 80s. early eighties, yeah. early yeah. eighties, and and you're you're buying all these records. Were you still a collector?
2: Yes, yeah, so I was a collector. So very you much hadn't
1: a... made that crossover to DJ.
2: No, not not yet.
1: And so mm-hmm. when did you when what was the spark that led you to think? Oh, hang on a minute. Like I've got all these records. Because normally you just have all the records, and so somebody says, "Why don't you DJ?" Is that what
2: happened? No, the spark was um, having this latent. Dormant ambition to play at the carnival. Ah, of course. Not in your carnival. Not clubs. I didn't aspire to be a club DJ. Because black DJs weren't being hired. We weren't in clubs. You know, in my circle, you know, all through the 70s, you, you know, um, the DJ came or was part of the sound system. sound system yes. was first, which boasted this DJ, this MC, this selector. Yes. it's always the sound system. Mm. Um, and I... Go to Carnival, uh, Carnival '76. It's dark well documented. It was the first time huge eruption of violence. There, Grove burned for three nights. Um, yeah, I was a front-line soldier in all of that. Witnessed it firsthand. Was part of it. Wow. What was not what proud, was what was everybody pissed off about? The racism and the oppression and the clamping down of of our rights. Basically, the establishment at the time uh, with the You know, the arm of the state, using the police to basically tell you that you're black, you've got no place here, and you will do as you're told. And we will be able to do what we want to you, as we feel, when we want. And... Leading up to that big riot in August, that hot summer of 76, heatwave summer, never forget it. it was so hot, yeah. Yeah, that heatwave summer of 76, there was a rise um, in unpublicized deaths of black youth in London um, police stations. In custody, yeah. In, in, cu- in custody, unexplained deaths. Um and there was a couple, and there was one in Nottingdale police station, which Nottingdale was dread. Everybody knew Nottingdale was the home of the SPG, the Special Patrol Group. Right, um, yes, I remember that. Yeah, who were the dark side of the Met police, who took no prisoners and basically did what they liked. And I'm especially proud that I was part of that generation of youth. I would have been 16, 17, then. Yeah, that summer I would have been 18. Um, Young, disenfranchised, angry, and was ready to confront them to put a stop to it. So, yeah, August, Bank Holiday weekend, 1976. Yeah, it erupted, um, partly because of an unexplained death of a black youth in there. But in the run-up, and we know now that that was a... A tactic that the Mets still use at at carnival you know um, in the run-up to to the carnival basically flex the muscle a little bit let the youths know (laughs) that they don't run things we do Mm -hmm. and and it was at that particular time that summer where I've suffered my first real direct racism I've been lucky you know, maybe it's because of my attitude um, to life and to people. I never, hand on heart, and i said this in many interviews, I never really suffered racism. Not on the level that some of my peers and contemporaries did. You know, I, never, I have to say, hand on heart, I never really did. But there was one occasion... Uh, I don't know if I illustrate that in my book but, I, but I'll be brief there was one illustration where I've come out of my house I'm just about to go out got my duffel bag walked down the road for my mum's it's a Saturday evening about 7, 8 o'clock you know, in the summer really up nobody about I'm waiting at the bus stop Panda the car, pulls up and it's just a sixth sense I just knew he was going to stop and say something across the road mm. so I'm waiting at the bus stop he's pulled up across the road wound down the window and, uh, and it was just, well, I can't repeat what he said to me. Right. <laughs> the N word, yeah. you black this, you black that. Da, da, da. And I was like, whoa. And you're just and saying you at a bus stop. Like he you... wound down the window, drove about 50 yards down the road, done a U turn, and came back. And my heart started thinking, my God. And he got out, more abused, grabbed me, bent my arm, nearly choking me, put me in the back of the car. And I can't believe what's happening to me. And yeah. I'm going, just you went into a carnival. That's all I could say in my defence. And it was a case of, you threatened me, da-da-da-da. And he drove me for about ten minutes towards the police station. You're getting nicked for the... I'm like, oh. And there's no one around to witness this. Yeah. And as we get outside the police station, he tells me to get out get on my way. <laughs> and I'm like... I'm dazed. in a proper yeah. state of shock thinking. And all I can think of, carnival cannot come quick enough yeah. for me. And for someone like me, that I had no dealings with the police, never been in trouble, for something like that, when I tell him, my mate, this happened to me. But, and this is the problem that we had. Our parents still didn't believe the police were doing this to us. Yeah. You must have done something. And this was the general thinking, and this is why there was this schism between the black youth and... the you know, the parents' generation. They did not believe that this thing was happening to us on a daily basis, every day of the week, where the police were doing this to us with impunity. So I'm thinking just you wait till Carnival. So I get to Carnival, I'm ready. Like thousands of us were ready. And then when the old Bill came with their short sleeves and their buttons, we came with our dustbin lids, bricks and bowls, And we mixed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came off worse.
1: Yeah, of course, because that uh, happened to you. That must have happened to hundreds of kids, you know, you know, along and, the grove and, and but,
2: everywhere. You know, I was like a cardboard warrior, really, because for me, it was all a big game. as a chance to get my own back to there, but it quickly escalated out of control. And from being sort of brazen and at the front of it all. I was really scared because I saw sites there. You know, I saw the mob mentality. It dawned on me in those hours what mob, uncontrolled mob mentality was really. Yeah, like. you were in a war zone. Proper, you know, if you, you can look it up on YouTube, look yeah, you know, I remember pictures of it. Grove the... burned for three days yeah, and nights. It's... Cars, you know, houses. I remember houses. news footage
1: from then. Yeah. yeah.
2: You know, and I was in the middle of all of that, and so was Don. This nice. actually, but I don't think Don was closer to where I was because I was very angry, very confrontational at the front. Mm. Yeah, um, mm. I'm ready to rumble.
1: Gosh, was <laughs> there a? I, is there an angry record that that is there a record that kind of defines yeah, that yeah. time? Um, like, I, I think, think it's was was Police and the, Thieves, G- the arena the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's Uh, got to happen I just
2: remember that when all the sound systems switched off that tune just kept ringing it was like a clarion call Um, and then it was all about self-preservation how am I getting out of here because um, the youth had set up burning cars and and burning wood and barricades so that the police couldn't get in (laughs) but we couldn't get out (laughs) Yep. And we knew that, because of what happened, whoever they caught might end up, you know, so in the hands of special, yeah. and they mm. will wreak their revenge. Well, let's 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 <laughs> let's draw a line under let's that. Let's line wow. the move, wow. <laughs> Yeah, let's. But, it, let's but it was a period in time that yeah. needed to happen because yeah. the, the law got changed after that, and it made the police look at how they treated black youth. Uh, sadly, today it's slipping back mm. in, into that. We've learnt no lessons from forty years ago.
1: Well, we are. We are well, let's not get un, into politics yeah. now. But we are. Yeah, it seems we are sliding back. To, it definitely feels more like the seventies now yeah. than it ever has done. Mm. And you know, well,
2: your but, testament to that. I, you well, around, you, I, know, you know, yeah. I, had,
1: I had bricks thrown at me mm. and told to, to f off home and all mm. that. So, um, mm. so let's draw a line under that. Yeah. Let's listen to Junior Marvin and uh, and come out the other side uh, with some positivity. Happy
0: <laughs> Trailblazers. No- Norman Jay, Police and thieves
2: in the street, fight of the nation with their guns and ammunition.
1: Junior Mervin, Police Police and thieves. the soundtracks, the soundtrack that, that the riot, at, mm. uh, the, the three-day mm. riot at, mm. at uh, and beyond in in Notting Hill in, in the hot summer of 1976. But from the bad times, let's let's look at now the good times. So because of course you you wanted to play at your beloved yeah, at street party. Yeah, you know. I
2: wanted to play at the carnival because at that time um, there was no sounds, no Soul Boy sound systems at carnival. It was all. Um, Reggae, calypso, soca, but no black American music, no mm. black British music. So, in 1979, I just got back from New York. Uh, my first trip to New York, loved it. Come back with a million records, and really set about thinking I, I'm gonna, I want to get my sound into into carnival, because that was the only route open to me. You know, I I couldn't go to a club and go, listen, can I do a warm-up for you? Can I do this? There was a couple of black teachers around at the time who shall remain nameless, um, who were just treated so badly as fodder. And I went, you know what? (laughs) They will never, ever do that to me. I will never be one of those. You know, I'm going to play our music to our people on my own terms our way and our only vehicle that we had you know no one's going to open up and give us a club Mm. you know just wasn't done but for two well in those days it was three four days a year at carnival before they regulated it that was the only platform that we had for music and artistic expression Mm. you know all the budding um, black DJs and sound systems you never heard of for 11 and a half months of the year but two weeks at Carnival it was like a blossom this is our time to shine this is our time <laughs> you've got to grab your moment
3: so so the, the first time you played at Carnival was there any organisation oh no it was, you, you literally just it was proper world just just <laughs> it stick the speakers here
2: listen it was survival of the fittest right the loudest yeah, <laughs> yeah. you get know, there well the, 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 the crucial thing was um, where you could get power? Okay, yeah, power dictated where you played. Right. Uh, so you find any house um, or persuade anybody as long as you can plug the amps in. Yeah, you got it. You <laughs> yeah. got yeah. it uh, So,
3: so um, was this you working in tandem with your your brother Joey? Yeah. To- Deliver your
2: first? Yeah, because we'd we'd been we'd had the sound since 1975. Good times or Great Tribulation, as it originally was, yeah, played locally, played in around Grove, Ealing, Acton, Chiswick for Mm. years. Little sound clashes, Mm. building up a little following, um, but not playing any solo or anything. I used to go and support my brother. as you know one would those Mm. days, you know, and and then Good Times quickly became the pride of or Vacton or the area got a cool little following but I always harboured you know an ambition because it was an ambition to go and play at Carnival be the first soul boy right first soul sound to go and play at Carnival so um, just got back from New York 1979 thinking just need to talk to Joe we'll go up there on Thursday night if necessary <laughs> because you go up there blag a, blag a spot and then you can plug in and play uh, and I think when I got there in nineteen seventy-nine we'd my brother was playing out somewhere. I went to carnival on the Friday in the rain, scouting out of place to play, but all the spots were taken. Yeah. It was like every ten feet there was a sound system thinking, Oh God. So but that was a blessing in disguise that we didn't play the first year, seventy-nine, because looking back I know we weren't ready. By nineteen eighty we were ready and organized, had the music we'd had twin citronic decks when all the other sound systems only had one turn table. Yum. We broke all the rules, all the traditions. So I've gone up there scouting up on uh, um, Cambridge Gardens because we used to live on Cambridge Gardens many years ago, my mum and dad said. And it was just by fate. I mean, my mum and dad live still live in number 37, Allison Road. And I looked at number 37... Um, Cambridge Gardens and there was a low parapet wall. And I just I don't know, suddenly came. This is where we're gonna set up. And I remember knocking on the door and there was a few sort of hippies and everything and I was ready just to go, Listen, can we buy the power? And then I quickly realised it was a squat. They were squatting in there. It's a housing thing. And I just told the guy, instead of asking, I told the guy, Listen we're plugging in here tomorrow. Is it all right to have the sound? And he just sort of, yeah, all right, you could plug in. I I should have kept my mouth shut, but I was so surprised that he said yes. I said, listen, we'll pay you 50p, which is a lot of money, and we'll give you a crate of party servants. (laughs) 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 So you can have your party in the house. So I think six or seven o'clock the next morning, this is a working day morning. Carnival hasn't started. We're up there. Managed to get gather the troops, nick my old man's car, his old Cortina, and we sit up and we play. And my brother wasn't keen. Joe didn't want to do it. And I just had to overrule him, you know, I just go, Joe, listen, we need to get in here now because he wanted to come up on the Saturday. Hmm. Didn't you learn anything from the year before? <laughs> you need to be here yeah. before anyone else, the early bird.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> catches the
2: worm. <laughs> catches the worm. So we were... And already there was other sounds setting up at the other end of Ackland Road, but we didn't want to go there anyway. We were the first ones to set up on Cambridge Gardens, outside number 37, perfect low wall pitch so we could put our speakers on the wall. Yes. Set the decks off the road, off the pavement. And then run the cable into the first floor.
1: Yes, because they've each got a little, a small front garden in each That's one of right. those houses. Yeah, yeah. some of them
2: have got huge railings, big walls, and you. Yeah, can't, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so but so just rewind a tiny bit. So, who bought the sound system? How did that come together? Uh, my brother built it. So yeah, he Joe, built it, with Joey
2: his- and, he, and his mates, really from bare hands. Of- mm you know recycling before recycling was a thing yeah, yeah yeah. anyone threw out an old tv you'd go down to um, portobello market on saturday there's old tvs yeah. stereograms first thing that'd come out of them tape speakers out take tweeters out at school school record player take the turntable out take the tweeters out nick them yeah. from school <laughs> um and he's a, like a self-taught sound engineer we often used to laugh at this there's a thing in the black community you know because money was non-existent, everyone was poor. No one had money to go and buy kit, mm. and you'd walk into these um, shops that 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 um, sold components, you know, speakers, mm. electronic shops, mm. and you get these old boys in brown coats, and you talk to them about, you know, what would happen if you join this transistor into that, and they go sharp and take a breath. Oh, can't be done. And then my brother would go home and do exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Wicked sound. Make them. it work. <laughs> Make it work. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of sound systems got the same history. That's how a lot of them were w- built. We were only small.
3: We were only... Th- but, but was it pivotal because you played the, the big soul records of the day? The yeah, rest, it was pivotal. And that was presumably just well, helped when we to shape...
2: There, when we went there in 1980, yeah. um, Nick... Um, it was a, a, a big deal to even put a non reggae record on the turntable, let right, me tell you. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, because okay. the whole soundtrack of Carnival was soca, calypso, reggae, yeah. lovers rock. Yeah. And I can't remember what record, but it was proper left, you know, and brand new, something yeah. that I know no one had ever heard of. And I put this tune on, and I think only me and my mates, DVP, my MC, we were the only ones dancing to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and then we got bold and we played a couple. And I remember 1980, we were playing, or I was playing, Archie Bell mm-hmm. and the Drells, Sister Sledge, all the tunes that five years later would go on to be two-step anthems, Yes, <laughs> as you know. Yes, yes. We're the fathers of two-step, even mm. before they called it that. Mm. We played all of those records because I knew and I understood... Mostly all the black girls in there were all into Lovers Rock. They loved their reggae. Mm-hmm. And the only soul they'd go with is if it's slowed down, you mm-hmm. know. Um, well, Lovers soul. Well, it would always it would come,
1: as David Rodigan always said, it would, it would come in the context of a smoky reggae club and then yeah. it would just like be a switch it up moment yeah. when, some, when the DJ would <laughs> yeah. just when, play yeah, one yeah. of those. And, they,
2: and but, they would play in the reggae clubs then. The obligatory soul record then was Nina Simone, my baby just don't care. Mm. Yeah. Yawn. Mm. <laughs> but you know, I'd come there and I'd um play Aretha. Yes. You know, yeah. um You know, I'd play Aretha, respect, you know, yeah. really rousing
1: Yeah yeah yeah. And the ones you you'd that people never dance.
2: expect to hear that there. And suddenly people come from, goodness, someone's playing this? Yeah. Who 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 is this guy who is this sound <laughs> right you know and, and you were on the him, map he, yeah well, n- not then we were no? um, okay. uh, but that first session was followed <laughs> you know got death threats uh, knife threats um, why cans, you
1: get well, knife threats because of the, your position because people wanted that, that spot <laughs> or because of the music or <laughs> yeah, because you were because playing that, Sister Sledge because we were playing music <laughs> that, that, that wasn't deemed oh, acceptable oh I see right, yeah. it was just a threat to the status quo basically yeah, ab- absolutely we do <laughs> yeah.
3: there is this thread in with our trailblazers <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't there yeah, yeah. you probably know Mike Pickering game. Oh, yeah, 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 you know yeah. the death threat story yeah, when he yeah, yeah. played the Astoria right because he was playing house music and yeah. people wanted to hear Red Yeah, I got the same
2: death threat when I first played at the fridge taking over from Joe Strongman I had to get a dozen bouncers to escort me out from <laughs> Brixton's Black Mafia god
3: because you
2: know. what were you what were you playing in that uh, because I wouldn't play any of the reggae cuz they thought a black guy coming right. in there to play right and they making a request put some reggae ra- yeah. on put, put some of the like, I'm
3: like not not don't do. do it yeah don't, don't do that wow um so, how about a a tune that you played at Carnival on your system? Yeah, uh, not necessarily 1980, but but maybe in one of the subsequent years. Yeah, but one that, that put you where you felt right. We're we're on the map. Is us. This is us. We've we've got this. Um,
2: it either have to be um, Archie Bell, yeah, um, don't let love get you down, yeah, or Sister Sledge thinking of you. Because uh, there was loads. You know, I can remember playing. Um, uh, the one tune which was me, which I loved, was Change, The Glow of Love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well,
3: then let's play Let's that. play, should play yeah. Change. That's yeah. wicked. Cause, yeah. yeah. Let's, do, let's, let's because, hear that.
2: Because I was a big fan of Luther. Yes. I've known, been buying Luther records for five years. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I dared to play the full-length version. I had a promo 12 then. Yeah. That I'd found... Um, and so that version's about nine or ten minutes long. Yeah. And I wouldn't take it off. Right.
3: Just like, let it run.
2: <laughs> Just let it run. Because then, uh when you played in sound clashes, you know, it'd get wheeled back. Mm. And then somebody else would come in and play. And I said, no, no, no one's wheeling back this. Let it. I'm putting on the longest version. Let it talk, let Just it run. It. it could be that, or a couple of years later. Um, when we played in the cage, horrible memories. We played Planet Rock, right? Africa, Bombata, I think, or one of them.
3: Let's let's the go with that. That change glove, love, man. Yeah. That's a wicked tune. Let's stick yeah. it on, shall we? Yeah.
0: Trailblazers, Norman Jay.
2: Flowers <laughs> <the blues> <the blues> blooming, morning dew, and the beauty seems to say it's a pleasure when you treasure all that's new and true and gay. Easy living, and we're giving what we know we're dreaming of. We are one, having fun, walking in the globe
3: Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists.
0: Deezer. Deezer.
1: Originals. You've taught me a cultural phenomenon here, which I wasn't aware of, or which has only just dawned on me, and I'm just amazed that it's only just dawned on me. <laughs> I've <Like> been a <laughs> DJ for, for many decades. Is that you said. There was a DJ and an MC and a selector. It was mm. a very triangular picture that you yeah. painted. I thought mm. the DJ was the
2: selector. No, not necessarily. No. So
1: you'd have somebody picking the records yeah. and then yeah. somebody different playing
2: yeah. the records? Playing the records, yeah. Yeah, then you'd have the MC, and if you. Well, but that that way inclined, you'd have a vocalist. We used to have a singer as well. Briggy used to be used to sing over the instrumentals. Of, yeah, yeah, that of I, I get. tunes and soul tunes. Yeah, I was yeah.
1: always aware of you know like the yeah. PA yeah. singer, the, the uh, and of course the MC and the DJ. But I never know, I never
2: knew that there was a separation
1: between yeah, the DJ but and the selector. This is where
2: again you know I didn't need a selector because I was a selector. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you you so yeah.
1: In effect, you were you know really a trailblazer in that you folded yeah. those two things together.
2: Yeah. And we brought two turntables to Carnival. And we brought Technics. We were at the cutting edge of all the technology. Mm.
1: And so were you starting to mix records then? No, or just I waiting wasn't, for no. the end of and then? playing? Waiting for the you end know. of the
2: songs. But I had um a young guy who's still with me today, Rudy. He was of that age, that generation, of when electro records were first being played, you know, I'd bring Rudy along. He had only been about fourteen or fifteen then. Um He just had a knack he learned on our turntables at my mum's house. Um, And I went, right, Rudy, you could be our mixer and scratcher. Mm. (laughs) And he used to mix, not so much mix, but definitely scratching, cutting up records, 1981, 82. For us, we'd give him a little half hour slot. And as it got more popular, we'd let him do more. Um, So we covered all bases. You know, we're a sound system. We're DJ entertainers. We play music, we've got a singer who can sing over instrumentals, you know, uh, we've got a young kid who cuts and scratches, you know, pretty much like Saxon. Yep. You know, it's and Saxon all those sound system. system. Yeah. yeah.
3: you know. And, and then how does it go from all of that into the sort of shaking finger pop here and you find yourself playing warehouse mm. parties and your demographic has changed, yeah. you're not playing to just... Well, our initial
2: fans were one over at Carnival, right, um, where people are first exposed to us. You know, we came to Carnival first time in August 1980. Uh, We set up Kiss in 1985. Yep. Um, So the first time anyone would have heard of us on on the radio would have been Carnival '86. Mm -hmm. By then, I'm on Kiss, doing the original Groove show and stuff like that. Um, And Kiss was still a pirate. A pirate, obviously, importantly.
3: Yeah, Yeah, the first way it was a lot. Different to what it is now. If I don't young, know what it is now. If I younger listeners might yeah. be listening yeah. to so Kiss right, yeah. right now, this is it's a l- little years bit different. Ago, it yeah. So there is a little
1: period yeah. there which I just want to cover. So sure. between 1980 and 1985, on yeah. the start of Kiss, hmm. you were you were in in how the story yeah. that you just painted. You yeah. were basically playing out once a year. Yeah. So what were you doing yeah. in between then?
2: Um, trying to promote um, little gigs in church halls and stuff, um, putting on little parties and holding parties at my mum's house in my own house and at this time it's right of you to pick up on them because at that time uh, saw the emergence of um, soul sound systems you know non-reggae sound systems Mm. where the DJs would come with either one or two decks and hardly any reggae would would be played all night long Um, and one such sound system Still plays at carnival today. Um, picked up on the, the emergence of the first wave of electro and hip hop was Rap Attack. Uh-huh. Ah. Yeah. Um, there was Rap Attack there in the west in West London with us. There was Mastermind probably. The, Mastermind, yeah, Herbie and, and that. Yeah, Yeah, Halston yeah Definitely. Kind of guys. Glad you reminded me of that. Yeah. Got to give Herbie his his due. Yeah. Because even though. Herbie's sound system at Mastermind, because I, I remember checking them out in 79, 1980. Yeah. Had all the kit, but as far as I was concerned, no music. right okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Same like the other sound system, they're 6x6. there, 6 x 6 they could not touch me for music selection. Uh, right. I, I knew that. Um, and I knew that our sound would sound better than them. If we had a clash or a contest, good times would... Yeah, we'll try and. we would rinse any of them <laughs> out. <laughs> and, uh, just
3: except. <laughs> Herpes. Okay. <laughs> very, very quick one. Yeah. Were you doing anything non musically at this time to bring uh, a couple of quid in?
2: Uh, what was I doing? I spent years sort of. Um, I was hustling records. I was a, like a one man. Right record house I'd stand outside Bluebird Records yeah and just sell and, stuff. and, and sell stuff yeah. yeah
3: like Rodigan did yeah. funnily yeah. enough yeah. with his little hold yeah. all full because of i guess I was going to New York um, um, every yeah. year right from
2: 1979 through to about 1987 I, I've spent ex- extended periods there
3: yeah so I was there so it a very important Very, mu- very musically yeah. dominated yeah. thing so you tapped you built a crowd through Carnival and was it that then yeah let's Let's so, and then we had Kiss as a pirate. Yeah, uh, and then I just want to talk about like yeah, which opened
2: bu- me up to an even mm. bigger and more diverse audience. Great, and was that how something like Shaking Finger Pop came yeah. together? So yeah. was, tell us what that was. Mm. Well, Shaking Finger Pop was the natural or the logical extension to the house parties that I was doing. Right, we were doing house parties since the mid seventies to the mid eighties, um, but I kind of. Sh- shied away from it especially from the, the Deptford fire mm. which really that was in 1981 where yeah. 13 black people got roasted to death in a party in, in uh, New Cross and a few things like that were, were, were happening and, uh, and we were you know on the black scene so big so popular um, I'd run out of houses um, to do mm. know, we were doing bigger houses in Notting Hill Chiswick Huge house parties, um, but I didn't want to do them anymore. I just the next stage was to find a space, um, an illegal space. Um, and were you being paid to do this, or were you doing no, this for love? Were you no, being paid in I beer had and no food? No money. Or? I was unemployed those years. It was a hustle, um, but I was driven by I wanted to put on a massive party, you know, an illegal party, uh, and because I'd been to a couple of smaller. Um, parties. I think at this time I just discovered um, Noel and Morris Watson mm. playing at Battlebridge Road. Yeah, and my ears were so to the ground. I knew every illegal run-ins, whether it was on the White Sea or the Black Sea. I knew, you know, they were doing their their thing in Battlebridge Road, and Funkadelic a sound system from from East London were doing massive parties in the squats. At, um, ah, uh, down um, Camberwell. Yep. Yeah. In Camberwell Grove, mm. because that's where the term roadblock comes from. <laughs> you know, um, it was a year that the, the funkadelic just block up the road. They did a you know roadblock party <laughs> in the squat at Camberwell, and I, I kept. They did a series of parties there. I kept hearing on the phone. I thought, you know what? I need to get myself over there because that time I'd never even been to Camberwell. Mm. I need to get over and see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And I remember pulling up at the bottom of um, Camberwell Grove. <laughs> All the black boys just got out left all their cars the whole street was just roadblock with cars massive party going on in there and I get in there and I think wow but we could do it better than this because my my first thing was always about you know the sound system which no nah. and I stayed there three or four hours music selection no nah, that's not not really happening um, but the fact that they'd, they'd pulled it off that's I yeah. was like they've pulled it off and they've got loads of white people to come to a dance like this because I always strove to have a mixed crowd not just you know Good Times was essentially you know its roots are in the black community but shake and Finger Pop was you know, just was broader the, yeah was much broader and, and who so who
3: were the key players in the shake and Finger Pop um, equation
2: myself and Joe we just Reinvented ourselves. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just basically... Uh, where, does, where, does,
3: where does Judge Jules fit into uh, all of that?
2: Well, I met Judge Jules at a huge illegal party um, that he and his family function crew yeah. um, were, were playing at under King's Cross Station. Right? Yeah. It's all knocked down now. Yeah. And two massive tunnels. Um, yeah. Soul to soul in one side. Yeah. Um, and... Shaken thing and uh, family function in the other side it's, Okay. It's weird because these two tunnels, there must have been about two, two and a half thousand people there. One tunnel, no lights on. <laughs> music blasting out, mixture of soul, reggae. And the other tunnel, all the lights are on. Um, new wave playing, um and early house music? Uh, no, not, no, no, not for house. No, okay. This is a crap, hip hop. Okay. Um, you know, hotel motel rap okay. um, was going on down there, and cause, and I'm when I'm outside, and I get to the door, and um, I, hear, Norman, is that you and I looked up, I couldn't believe it. It was Jazzy B's older brother, Pops, was on the door, and that's when he told me, "Yeah, there's a huge." I went, first thing I said, "How did you get this space? How did you pull this off?" And uh, my big question: Who's behind it? I need I to know that, who's behind yeah. it. Because already I said, I need to find out whoever's this, cause I need to do a party with whoever did this. Yeah. Um, and I found out it was um, Jules and his mate, Mark Rayner. Mark was a pal of Jazzy. That was a connection. Right. Um, Mark found the venue. Mm-hmm. Jazzy rented him. <laughs> Skanked him, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, gave him the, the remnants of Soul to what was left over. Um, and it was never going to sound as good as Salt Soul Souls rig mm-hmm. in there, and it broke down because when I got in there, there was no music ah. <laughs> in there, and I and Femi was in there. Yes, yeah. and Femi came up to me and with a wry smile, and I went, Femi, who's behind this? He went, oh, family function. I went, do you know them, Mister? I, I know Jules and this is So Femi gave me the introduction right to Jules, and first thing I said to him is, I looked at him, he was in despair, almost tears. I said. You do a party with me, this will never happen. Meaning, yeah. we'll give you a yeah. proper, proper rig. Yeah. This will never happen. So Jules was all right, you know. Um, he said, so we swapped numbers, and a week or so later, he gave me a call. He said, Norman, do you wanna, I've got another venue in mind. Um, so I went up to his flat in Kentish Town, then, and we started talking. So we got this. Sussed this lovely place on the river at Southwark. I didn't even let him finish. I was out the door, in my car, <laughs> yeah. straight over there to scout <laughs> it out to have a look. As soon as I come over Southwark Bridge, I don't think it was the right place that, that Jules found I nice saw this place. was Instantly. This is where that part is going to be. Bear wharf Southwark. Um, and... And it, it, went,
3: all, it all, you know, and it all yeah, expanded from there. So so that, so,
2: that, so, that, so mm, then in this era, mm, we had the birth of warehouse party culture yeah, in London. With, and but the, the important thing about that was the soundtrack. It yep. wasn't about jazz, funk, soul in little boxes. When we did the flyer, there was no hint of any music being played. No hint of DJs. Mm. That was my my idea. Mm-hmm. It was all. This is, we're the underground. No one's supposed to know who's behind it. Yep. And I didn't want anyone to know that I was behind it because I didn't want the rougher ends of my black crowd coming there. So, you know, and I had a lot of mates from football. I had a lot of mates who were punks. A lot of mates who were rockabillies from all walks. And I just let everyone know I'm having a party in a massive warehouse in Southwark. Mm. All I did on the fly was shake and finger pop, family function, party. So that means... <laughs> You know, bring your own, I remember, bring your own beer, bring your own drink, bring your own drugs. So, and we had close to 3,000 people show up at that party. 1986, the summer, World Cup summer. Okay. (laughs) All
3: right. Have we got a tune from that one?
2: Yes, got a tune from from that one. Um, it would be the the first house tunes. Right. Um, then, because we played a mixture from... Rock and Roll to Acid House, right? Um, And on that party, who played with me because I love the way he played, was I invited Jonathan Moore?
3: Yes, Cold Cut, half Cold cold Cut, cut, of course. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, he was
2: meltdown then. Yes, yeah. Jonathan Moore came and played with me on one floor. Jules played on another floor, and we gave the third floor to a band to, from my way, um, mates of mine who had guitars and that, who we now know as the Brand New Heavies. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. 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 right, they play. <laughs> yeah. And a very young Jamiroquai was there climbing all over the walls. Fantastic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so what, what tune are we going
2: um, to drop to sound? It's soundtrack? either Funkin' for the Drums Again or Let the Music Use You. Uh,
3: we'll do Nightwriters. Yeah, let the yeah, Music Use yeah. You. That's a, that's a wicked tune.
2: Because we were playing that, I know, a full year before, or two years before it became popular again, yeah, yeah. maybe because you, you couldn't get it, because that summer I bought my first house records, Um, couldn't play them on the radio, but could play them at Shaken Finger Pop, because mm. basically the music canvas was this wide. Mm. Northern soul, house music, reggae, hip hop, and The Clash. Got it. <laughs> You know, I could play my Clash records. I could play my Small Faces records. I could play my Thin Lizzy records against Luther, <laughs> laughing, <Yeah. laughs> and, and it was proper eclectic.
3: All right, yeah. all right. Well, we'll we'll listen to that too now. Night Riders letting the music use you, and then and then once we've heard it, I've got uh, another important question for you. So sure. let's let's hear it now.
0: Trailblazers, Norman Jay.
3: Nightwriters, let the music use you. Quick question, hmm. rare groove, that yeah. to, That term, you yeah. were Mr.
2: Rare Groove, yeah. you were the guy who, was, who, who, hmm. who became... On the radio. Um, it, it grew out of the radio uh, on my show on Kiss from 1985 to 1987 called The Original Rare Groove Show. Okay. Tongue in cheek, but I called it that because a lot of the records, and most of the records, they weren't rare, but it just couldn't go into black market or go into a regular record Mm. shop and get it if you were discerning with a little bit of help a little bit of luck you know or go into record and tape at the right at the right time Mm -hmm. you could get those records a few of them were hard to get and, and mm. was that genre of 70s sort of funk
3: known as Rare Groove before you put the name on your radio show? No, it
2: wasn't. It so was it was you... 70s you, funk. You put, you put that flag yeah. in the sand. I became synonymous with it. Yeah. Um, wasn't me. No. Uh, it was the, the media that was writing about it in a bid to describe it or explain it.
3: Said, this is Rare Groove. This, this is, is Rare Groove. This is what Norman Jay plays. Got it. This is
2: Rare Groove. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'll row with it because at that party... Um, I can remember um, we started off warming up playing all the regular black records of the day, all the sort of Charelle, yeah. you know, all of the, the, that kind of day yeah. yeah. and it wasn't working with the kind of crowd that we had in there. Yeah. And and my brother, Joey, said to me, Norman, this music isn't working. The dance is it's grinding to a halt. He said, "Why don't you get the records?" So I had all my seven-inch records yeah. and all my change band, all my funk stuff, you know, in the in the in the van. Yeah, I went, "Joe, go and get those records." And as soon as I put on Ruben Wilson, got to get your own. The place exploded. Bang, yeah, exploded. And I thought, well, if you like this. I've got thousands of these records and then you were on just, to Maceo and the Max yeah, probably
3: or Jackson, Jackson sister, sister, yeah, yeah and so, it, yeah. so and, no, that that was it, and that yeah. was a, an amazing
1: no,
2: you're right on it Nick that's exactly I was, uh, yeah, yeah I was <laughs> in and around <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've got to say shout out to Sean P at the at the record and tape exchange in Notting Hill <laughs> yeah, UK UK yeah. made him a very busy man yeah. basically by, co- <laughs> by coining that yeah. but can I sorry can I switch it up very sure quickly because you can, yeah. you've, you've mentioned football now three or four times so it's obviously something that's really close to your heart Yes, Uh, genuinely I want to know so is this QPR or are you uh, it started
2: uh, off at Queen's Fight Rangers because they were the local team to me Uh, but you know 1966 World Cup Willie remember England winning the World Cup um 1967, I don't really understand football, but I play it all day, 30 side, in the park, all day, every <laughs> day in aside. a row, uh, <laughs> as kids did then, and then I was 10, 1967, first All-London Cup final, Chelsea uh, v, v Tottenham, and at that time I played number eight, inside right from my school, Jimmy Greaves was my absolute idol, uh, so it was Tottenham. So for you me. became a Spurs fan? Yeah, I became a Spurs fan. But oh, I fantastic! I didn't. I wasn't able to go over there for a couple of years um, because a uh, it was so far away, um, and all my mates, everybody supported QPR or Chelsea, especially in and around Grove and you Nottingham. Know, Everyone was like QPR, and I used to go to QPR with 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 my mates. Uh, but I, I had a relative. Once she was, I had a relative that lived in in um, Enfield or Edmonton, Edmonton Green. And then one day she visited and she said she lives in Edmonton. I'm like, my ear's pricked up. Sure, that's near Tottenham. (laughs) Surreptitious look on the A to Z. Yeah, it's only a bus ride. So I begged my mum to let me go for a stopover, for a sleepover at her house. And, of course, my mum let me go. The Victoria Line wasn't even built then, you know, I might as well have been traveling to, to, to Mars. So that was <laughs> the, 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 you know, the distance. But I made my way there um, to, to, to Spurs... Uh, against Liverpool, 1968, October the 19th,
1: and you saw Jimmy Greaves play. Uh,
2: he scored twice oh,
1: that day. Brilliant! What a god! <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> of course, football, something that's very close to Nick's and He still plays it, so and I, I, I'm, a Spurs, I'm, I'm a Spurs fan too. I, I, became, I, I never talk uh, about it. I became
2: an avid Spurs fan, and because my dad worked, he was a civil engineer on London Transport. Um, they don't do that now, London Transport, but but back in those days, uh, because of my dad was top of his grade, you know. Um, he was able to get um, special tickets, family tickets. Um, we had they were called privilege cards, so we could travel on the underground as kids for two p or five p, and pay a fraction of the British Rail costs hmm. to get anywhere if you travelled on British Rail. So of course I had my pass and I used it to maximum effect. So by 1970, I went. I'd been to uh, my first away game at West Brom the Hawthorns never forget that we lost 3-1 and then realised I'd opened a Pandora's box <laughs> with this <laughs> ticket I could go anywhere so I started to follow Spurs all over the country from about 69-70 season
1: for years wow it sounds like you remember the scoreline to every yeah. game yeah no
2: I don't actually <laughs> I only, it's only fresh in my memory because, because of the book and because I've yes. been recently asked a lot of questions um, mm. uh, over that re-spurs on um, spurs forums and that's like, yeah. all, all of that fresh in my head but moving that on just a little bit it meant that I was able to go to um, northern clubs that I'd only previously read about so I made my first visit to Wigan Casino in 1977 and ah. um, and then, early in 1978, I made my first trip up to Blackpool Mecca.
3: And did you com- did you combine that up with football? So, a bit with of football, football in yeah, the yeah, afternoon, yeah, and yeah. then you'd take off. It. Oh, that's yeah. great because
2: that season two Spurs got relegated. Right. Spurs were in the second division. Right, and. Uh, when they were, I looked at the fixtures. First fixture I looked at, Blackpool v Spurs, right. Yeah, I, let's I do that. that. Yeah, I'm doing that. Okay. First time I'd ever been to Blackpool, and I can remember my mate Keith, who ran the coaches up there, came on the bus with a duffel bag. we well, got a duffel bag <laughs> Don't you worry about that. And I remember um, <laughs> the coaches were parked outside of the ground uh, because Blackpool football ground used to be across the car park from the, the Blackpool mecca. Okay. And it was just under the car park, separated the right. two. Right. And I remember all. Getting on the coaches on the way back, and I went to grab my bag. And he went where are you going? So I'll stand up for the club, and I remember the whole coach going, You must be out of your mind. What well, you're staying up here for music because they didn't understand, you know. Yeah. This is something I always wanted to do on my own, yeah. As I did a lot of those trips on my own, and I stayed because the club didn't open till one in the morning, right? And so I kept a low profile, I wasn't a drinker. So I knew steer clear of pubs and I'd be all right. So I hung about until about half twelve, got in the queue, got talking to people. They were really friendly. they what do you mean you come all the way up for London for this? Yeah, actually, yeah, I did. And um, made friends from that era, which are still friends to this oh, day. brilliant. And this yeah. would
1: be a, have been a Northern Soul club? Um,
2: it was a Northern Soul. Well, when I went to Blackpool, it was just at the time when... They they did, made a conscious decision to leave the sixties and old stuff behind, and start to play what you know we now know what I loved and it was New York disco, mm-hmm. um, but they'd. Uh, they played different tracks, but because I liked both, because I was a music man, so I liked the stuff that we were playing in London, which they'd never played up north, and vice versa. So I never had a, a problem with it, never had an issue with it. Like the whole thing, the Northern Soul versus Jazz Funk mm. thing, I liked both. Mm. So, you know... Uh,
3: Cool. Um, so then, what I'm interested in looking at now is when you embraced uh, house music and, and your your legendary High on Hope mm. residency. So that came mm. uh, post the big, rare groove yeah. uh, sort of uh, yeah. boom. And then, yeah. of course, acid, acid House essentially exploded mm. uh, and records mm. like Night Riders came mm. through. And mm. actually, briefly on that one, am I right in thinking the, s- the sound system, your sound? sound
2: system was used at shum yeah <laughs>
3: so yeah. so that's another link danny rampling another former guest yeah. Here.
2: Yeah. How, and a lot of raves as well and a, oh, okay. yeah, sunrise and so, um, biology yeah good times was the sound system used because we had the rig right you know and it's funny because so a were lot of those you, early you, promoters yeah were schooled at my shaking finger pop gigs right and they went on to scale it up and monetize it yeah. when we did ours it was for altruistic reasons, artistic reasons, because ours were very sort of right on and trendy and arty. Mm. Uh, but when this that generation came, they saw money, profit, and scaling it up. Yeah, and they did. And so you you, you had an involvement in all in all of that, and then and then uh, when what when were the high on hope years? Yeah, nineteen. It was same time as the summer of love, second summer of love um 8889 cuz basically um and you were f- you were the, f- f- the acid house here. phenomenon was was really a white thing um the high and hope thing was truer to its black gay um um church disco roots right um but the acid house thing became phenomenal you yes. know um but ours, which was... I never had a problem with that because it meant ours stayed pure. We were mm. very purist. Um, we were playing the house records. And, like, like you know, Frankie Fonseca, who was my original DJ partner then, we were playing Tears a year before you heard it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because um, we... And I say we, Frankie and I, but mostly me, knew of people like Tony Humphreys, Louis Vega, could, yeah. could name drop... All of those, when they were not struggling DJs, but only confined to the boroughs. Yeah. You know, they'd never traveled, never played out, you know. Mm. Um, And Danny Ramplin and myself, you know, were the first to bring an American DJ to play in this country. Mm. That was Tony Humphreys. Um, I'll briefly give you the story of how that happened. For years, from about 1984, 85, I always used to make a special trip to New Jersey and go to Tony Humphrey's um, club in East Orange called the Zanzibar. And every year they used to have a talent contest and they'd have the heats and I'd go there for the finals. And there this just one cold, it was freezing cold night, full of snow, and... Um, I go in the Zanzibar, which at that time was like 99.9% black. It was in the ghetto, really rough part of East Orange. You know, proper drugs, guns, lots of people, murders there. It was a really diabolical place to go. I go in there um, one night, me and my cousin Terry, a native New Yorker, walk to the front. In the DJ booth, I spot two white people. That's unusual, but I thought, well, that's normal where I come from in England. Can I but can I just check? One of them wasn't me, was it? No, it wasn't. Because I mean, I've, I've been to Zanzibar. <laughs> no, no. This, this is when no one had been to Zanzibar. This is before I got this there. This is before Clearly. you got there. And those two people was Danny Ramplin and Jenny. OK. Yeah, Danny yeah. and Jenny were, were, were in there. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. We looked at each now? other and thought, wow, this is unbelievable. And the first thing I said to Danny... It came straight into my head straight away. We got to bring him to Got to do him. this. Got yeah, to do yeah, him, bring him yeah, by, yeah. By over. Yeah. Um, and the winner of that talent show that night, of the night we were there, was Blaze. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to Tony, listen, we'd love to get... He, Tony didn't have a passport then. Right. And I got talking to him because he was really close With my cousin Terry, Mm. who's a you know Brooklyn native, born and bred. You know Terry was my way Mm. into the ghetto. Terry Mm. knew them all. Mm, mm, You know T Scott. mm. You know all Mancuso. Terry knew them all. This Mm. is my cousin. Mm, 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 Um, So Terry goes, Norman Strait He's he's all right. Yeah. He says my cousin from London. He's running things in London. he's, He's all right. And if you you know go with him. So just on Terry's recommendation, Tony went right. So. Met up with Danny when we got back. Yeah. And we said, oh, right Dan, let's share the cost. And let's do and, this. And let's, let's do it. Spread the word. So I had him because High and Hope was on the Thursday night. So we brought Tony, o- Tony over for about a uh, week. Yep. We ha- I had him at High and Hope on the Thursday. Danny had him at Shum on the Saturday. Yeah. And I think they took him, I think Mike Pickering had him up at Hacienda. Sounds about Am right. Am I right? Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Good. And then. He was phenomenal. He blew everyone away. Yeah. Which I knew he would. But, you know, I would known Tony for like five years before that. Was a big fan. Yeah. And uh, with house music he was yeah, he was an influence on me because um, he was still then using Final and Real to Real, which sure. is what we were using at High and Hope. Yeah. yeah. So we could get real to real was our dubs. Got it. Mm. You know, going back to the reggae thing of having exclusives. Yeah. You know, so I went almost overnight from being exclusively rare. Yeah, it's exclusively up front. <laughs>
3: um, interesting. It's yeah. an interesting, interesting switch. But I took a lot of flack then. Yeah, well, a lot that's of now, my now lot that's, that. Yeah. that is the yeah. thing of being a bit brave. You yeah. played the music that you believed in. Yeah. People probably were turning up expecting yeah. you to draw for. A, I told them, a, no,
2: James Brown here. Yeah, you, yeah. So, <laughs> what is <laughs> the rec-
1: what's the record that that um, that embodies that time then? The, the house record, the early house
2: record. Um, tears. Frankie Knuckles, without a shadow of doubt. Of course. You know? um, I had a, an exclusive of that um, because Frankie Fonset was working with Frankie Knuckles. Um, he was, Frankie spent six months in Chicago, 85, 86. Um, and Frankie came back with reels of finished, unfinished, but unreleased stuff and Nick was there so Nick will know Nick will be able to verify we were playing and I had access because of my connection with Tony Humphreys of all the Blaze stuff all the Adiva stuff even before mm. they had record deals mm-hmm. I helped them get record deals in the UK and you're playing this off a quarter inch tape I'm playing tape. this quarter inch tapes. I'm cutting <laughs> my own dubs yes of course um, all the Chaka Khan remixes. When the first big remixes of Chaka w- w- was done, Danny D, you know, bought the lacquers. They were still warm when he brought them to me.
1: Ah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and razor blade and sticky tape. Yeah. All right then. Yeah, well, let's so, let's yeah. listen to this, and then we're in the home straight.
0: Trailblazers, Norman J.
1: Okay, I just want to, I want to, well, rewind and forward wind at the Hmm. same time, really, by going back to the carnival. Hmm. So you have this unique perspective of what has become the biggest carnival in the world. Am I right in saying that? And you've witnessed it go from just people in the neighbourhood to this just stratospherically huge mm. phenomenon. And uh, like, what, what, was the, what was the real golden time for you? What's the time that you enjoyed the most? You know, was it when nobody was dancing and you were getting them to dance or was it when you had a massive
2: crowd? No, the early 90s when we, when we moved um, our spot, it was really dangerous, but I was there for like 10 years on Cambridge Gardens outside number 37 from 1980 to nineteen ninety. Um, One of the years we went in the cage, huge riot ensued in there. All our gear got ruined, nicked, smashed up, and I became really disillusioned with it. So in 1990, I said, you know what? I ain't doing this. I go to Carnival in 1990, which was a wrong, wrong thing to do. And I go and support the only other credible soul sound then. Um, They were just emerging, and it was um, Ashley Beadle and Cecil with right. shock,
1: mm. um, and you went as a DJ to play no, on their No, no sound I system. didn't. I
2: went as I just went as a spectator. I sat on right. the wall opposite, on the braised wall on the pillar, uh-huh. uh, with everybody going Norman. Where's good times? How come you're not doing this? And I knew, and I walked away feeling so frustrated. I mean, respect to Cecil and Ashley and all them, but but shock were like our baby brothers. Mm. You know, this is the generation that came after us.
1: Yeah, there you is. You know, no- they didn't. You know. There is no carnival we without good times. We spent 10 years building
2: up what we, we, we did. And I, I just went... But there was a lot of change going on, sea change going on then in carnival Day. Carnival was looking to expand. So I'm, you know, I was a lifelong member of BASE, the British Association of Sound Systems, which uh, was uh, like a, a sound system union that we had in carnival that only the sound systems that played at carnival could be part of. And at that time, there was 56 of us so can you imagine 56 sounds all crammed into one room with, you know, differing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Opinions. The, 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 opinions and egos bigger than this room. It was unreal. And when they suggested in that meeting that my dad came with me because it was so important when they were announcing the, the new sites for the expanded carnival. Um, and I'd made up my mind and persuaded everybody, no, where we are, Cambridge Gardens is, is history. It's toast the only way we're going to really make our name and be judged by what we do is move away from the epicentre of Carnival, which which is what I wanted to do, move away from the trouble, away from the violence, find somewhere new and fresh and start again, somewhere much safer where the posses and the tear gas merchants don't come anywhere near us. So we had the meeting and I was... that time, Sainsbury's had just opened at the top of Leprook and I'd had my eye on the Sainsbury's site. Um, if they ever opened it that's one I go there so get to the meeting and I asked about Sainsbury's and I was gutted to learn that Mastermind had already secured it in <laughs> uh, the car park, the car park. <laughs> oh, I was absolutely gutted but yeah. you were uh, yeah. you were able to to get I come out of the meeting because the meeting used to be at the top of the hapeney steps there the carnival offices absolutely fuming thinking what am I going to do now nowhere to go because I didn't want to go back to Cambridge Gardens and I'd had my heart set on there and I turned left out of the building where we had the meeting, stormed down the hapenny steps, walked down Southern Row and I had an epiphany moment. I stood there and looked. What about this? This is exactly where we're going to be and I remember having a furious row with my brother. Again, my brother thought I was out of my mind. Why do you want to come here? This is like leaving London and setting up in Newcastle. No one will ever come to this park carnival. <laughs> Nobody will ever and I remember and my dad, my brother will bear this out. I said, You watch. Within in five years I will have this place roadblocked. Yeah. You know, and you did. And we did it in three. Where did, <laughs> where did, where did the
3: bus thing um, come the, from? You had a big double-decker the bus. The
2: double-decker bus came from when I did the first Creamfields. Right. Um, I played at Creamfields, and they had me in like a VIP bus. And you thought, and hey, it, this is kind of uh, cool. Hang on, huh? and in my mind, I thought it would be a coach. Oh, Because right. in those days, DJ's played out of coaches. Open the window. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't had no idea it would be a double-decker bus. Uh. And I, I come over the, the, the hill, walking towards the thing, and I see this bus, and I thought, that can't be it in the rain there was nobody around it the field was empty and she went because it was a VIP area yeah. went Norman you're playing in there and I went absolutely this is exactly what I need for a carnival and I ran yeah. around like a headless chicken who's in charge of this bus duh, 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 duh. Yeah. this bus is wasted here it's, yeah. it was at Creamfields yeah completely I said I know where I could put this bus I need this bus at Nightingale Carnival yes yeah. Um, And I got phone numbers, I was harassing people for weeks, who's got this bus? Mm. Um, they didn't get it for me, so I had to rent another bus because we were limited by space because every year my uncle, my dad and a couple of people would come and build us a little wooden riser stage yeah. um, and it was encroaching into the road. So like a block of flats, if you've got to expand, go up. Sure. And a bus seemed the logical... Thing it's it. such a simple idea. I'm into London buses anyway. Yeah. Put a bus there. We'll play on the top. Leave all the equipment and the safety and the sponsors downstairs. And right.
3: The rest is history. The rest an, is history. An, an, yeah. enormous so the bus park. comes in, in
2: 1991. Yeah. Our first year, and I remember the big. That was so hot that summer. There was probably about. No more than 200 people. No one could find us. No one knew where we were. No matter how much time I spent on the radio that year telling people Good Times has now moved. We're in Cambridge Gardens. Because no, we were wow. the first people to move out there. Well,
3: it took all good things, all good things, and take time. And the big tune
2: was Kim Sims. That's, that year was the year of Steve Silk Hurley mixes. Yeah. Oh, I loved Kim Sims' record. I must have played it about half a dozen times that day. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the sun. Too blind to see it. <laughs>
3: And uh well I tell you what, let's we'll stick that on quickly and then we'll then we'll yeah. probably draw to to a to a conclusion. Yeah.
2: You can bring it up to date, Nick. I don't know where I am now, <laughs> Trail just...
0: <laughs> Trailblazers. Norman J.
1: So you're still? There. Are you still in that spot now? With, no, on, the dub, uh, on the bus. Where no, are you we, at Carnival we, now?
2: We, well, I'm not at Carnival. I haven't been since uh, 2013 was the last year that I did it. Really? I to me. see yeah. that you were still there. Yeah, but again, you know, just as Carnival migrated, you know, 3,000 miles, <laughs> and we've migrated seven miles up to um, Alexandra Palace. Right. And I think that's going to be our new home. No police. No hassle toilets safety mm. families so on bank
1: holiday weekend
2: you play in alley Park yeah we did it for than... the first time last uh, this year yeah seven thousand people showed up um an amazing hard standing ground we put the bus there um
1: so you do have your own notting hill carnival outside yeah. of notting hill <laughs> well, it's, it's
2: good times but you know we hopefully you yeah. know we, we we want to build it up over the next few years um put live music because that was always a frustrating thing for me you know had we had the space there you'd have seen require long before he had a yeah, you know yeah. you'd, you'd have seen the brand new heavies before you know friends of mine who were in the ground i had nowhere to put live things we weren't even allowed to do pas yeah um but we kept it pure there because i was inundated from dj oh come norman can we play carnival but said you have to understand you know that weekend, it's about our sound. This is our tradition. Good times, not about DJs. DJs work 51 weeks of the year. You can always, when you go away, all you do is carry your record box. We have to build this thing, we have to set it up. And when you walk away with your record box in the rain or in the cold, at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday morning when people are long gone, we're there. We've got to break it down, pack it away, clean it all up. Mm. That's what the sound system means. Yeah. You know, there is no. You know, and Joey was absolute about that. I think we only ever had, you know, and I had every DJ in the world asking me to play because it was an amazing thing to do. But... um in the few guests that we had there, I had Giles there a couple of years, Peterson. which was, Giles Peterson, which was brilliant. Who, who of course,
3: quick segue here we <clears you throat> haven't even touched on, on this, but you were part of Talking, talking Loud, loud. Oh, yes, cool. yes, working yes, alongside yes. Giles, yeah. bringing through you know yeah. multiple
2: acts, yeah, and yeah. great that, time.
3: That was Damn. an doing, incredible doing, part doing of your, the label. your career. And, and I mean, and you've remixed records yeah. and you've you know, you've done and traveled the world. It's yeah. uh, it's amazing. We, we it feels like we probably could do another. another noisy we should minute. probably do a part Tell two. Me be a part <laughs> <laughs> two. <laughs> Folks, there will be a part yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll will you do always do
1: part two. All right. Yeah. So yeah. Let's, let's 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 draw this to a close and let's 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 promise to do a
2: part two. Then. Then I'm talking to two pals who I uh, love dearly uh, and got uh, the most respect, <laughs> and oh, who know you. who share my history. So yeah. there has to be a part two. All right. Okay. All right, All right, we, will, we will we will we will do it.
3: but ahead of ahead of part two, we've got to ask the the classic question, Eddie. Yeah, the classic question, which is that if where it's not if but when the aliens. Get here
2: when the aliens
1: came. So here. I mean, but you know, beyond that, we don't know what they're going to say. But we're we're conjecturizing that they're they're building some kind of a super highway through this solar system, and they're looking to kind of like uh you know they're surveying it. Mm. Uh, and they, they you know do they destroy us or do they destroy the moon or or Mars? What's the tune that I you would, would say play to, to stop them to from this. destroying us?
2: Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Because you may feel sexy. Simple as that. (laughs) (laughs) No, Marvin Gaye is asking you the question: What's going on? Yeah, it's whoever comes and takes us over. (laughs) Then this question is asking you: What is going on? Yeah,
3: (laughs) the perfect tune. The perfect tune. Let's let's uh, should we should we. Sticking on now, or,
1: or yeah, I think that's that's got that's the cherry on the cake mm. okay. of, of part one, and with a tease that we're going to have uh, Norma Jay in for part two, and and uh... there'll be another one in
2: part two. Okay. In, into the 21st century. Okay. This one, was just summing up, the, the, you know, the, yeah. the 20th century. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. But I will pick you out. In part two, I'll pick you out 21st century. All right.
3: Okay, before we <laughs> play it, all the best with everything. Yeah. You keep Thanks, flying Nick. the flag for yeah. this incredible music. Your book is out. <laughs> Tell us about your book briefly. Yes, uh,
2: Mr. Good Times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a litany of of famous friends and parties and, and people I've met. It's about the Norman Jade, a regular guy who had regular interests, um, and his struggle yeah. um, against sort of a, a racist regime, oppression. Uh <laughs> Loads of obstacles mm. and triumphing in the end.
3: Great. All right. Well, that that's a essential reading for anybody who's who's interested in uh, in the kind of stories that we've been we've been talking about today. Of course. Brilliant. So thank, thank, you, thank you, so much. you so much, Norman. We'll see you again soon. Mate. Thank you. you take sir. care. Yeah. All right.
0: Trailblazers. Oh, what's going on? What's going on? These originals.